Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season and are ready to jump into what will be an exciting year in the federal technology market. On today's episode, we're reflecting back on some of the big events in 2023 and looking forward to topics that will be top of mind in the year ahead. I'm delighted to be joined once again this year by our cogent commentators and prognosticators par excellence. Maria Rote is the owner of M.A. Rote Consulting, former federal deputy CIO and past president of the American Council for Technology. Maria, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Dave. Happy to be here. And Robert Shea is the CEO of GovNavigators, former associate director for the Office of Management and Budget and former chair of the board for the National Academy of Public Administration. Robert, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave. I've been looking forward to this. Excellent. Well, Maria and Robert, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you both back on. And I know you've brought both copious amounts of data and research, as well as your magic eight balls and other divining devices (laughs) to help us reflect on what we've been through in the last year and then sort out what's in store for us in the year ahead. But before we get to the ghosts of past and future for the federal technology market, let's take a moment to reflect on what you've both been up to. Maria, what's been going on in your world in the last year? Yeah, you know, Dave, I just, I've been busy doing a little bit of board work behind the scenes, still keeping in touch with many, many of my colleagues across the federal government, and also uh, doing some volunteer work that I've never really had the time to do. Uh, Certainly focused on the county here up in Frederick. I'm on the board of Tech Frederick, a nonprofit up here, and uh, they've definitely been keeping me busy. I think the nonprofits are keeping me busier than anybody. (laughs) Those nonprofits, they're always asking you to continue to volunteer. And uh, and number one, we're grateful for all that you do for ACT-IAC. So uh, thank you for that volunteer work. And Robert, what's been going on in your world? Well, it's been more exciting than I anticipated. We launched Gov Navigators in March 2023, and we now have a weekly newsletter. We have a competing podcast on which you've appeared, which which we're grateful. And we launched a website, sludgedaily.com, that I hope you'll get a chance to visit. And we're helping clients have a bigger impact uh, in their federal government work. So a lot's been going on. Robert, let's stay with you. This year saw the two-year anniversary of the Customer Experience Executive Order. Will improving customer experience remain a high priority? And what are you seeing on the CX front that we should be paying attention to? Well, I'd I'd be remiss not to note the huge event you uh, hosted towards the end of the year, Dave, the, the Customer Experience Summit. I think this is an area in which the government's made probable progress uh, addressing some of the s- systemic problems serving the American public. And I particularly like the life experiences that have been defined, where you're uh, bringing multiple agencies that have a role in serving citizens when they uh, experience one of these big events. And they've got more data to measure progress going forward. And notable progress has been made. Uh, CX scores are up overall in the federal government, so we should celebrate that. I think we ought to rest our hopes, a, a lot of our hopes, on these initiatives because trust in government, as you know, is at an all-time low, and improving the experience citizens have with their government is a real opportunity to reverse that trend. So I, I not only anticipate it, that it will continue. I hope it continues and picks up speed. 
Yeah, you know, when you look at performance.gov, I, I did a little poking around on there to see how the agencies were actually doing on their life experience. And, um, and you know, they're making progress. They really are. And I can't say enough about the need when you look at, uh, like, the disaster one, right, the need for FEMA and SBA to really work together on their processes and and how they deliver the experience. And I think Robert's, you know, right on point that, you know, they're making really good progress. But and over the next year or two, I think a lot of that's going to coalesce as the agencies really start to consolidate some of their processes. So there isn't that duplication um, across the board. Absolutely. And uh, I appreciate the shout out for the Customer Experience Summit. It's, it was our largest forum ever. It's clearly a hot topic for government. We had over 700 folks at that event. And, uh, and so I think it will continue to stay top of mind. Uh, Maria, this fall also saw the release of the OMB memo, delivering a digital first public experience. Talk a little bit about the sort of twin imperatives around customer experience and digital transformation you know, what are some of the digital priorities and why is it important to make sure we're aligning sort of CX and digital work? Yeah, you know, that memorandum was a long time, <laughs> was a long time coming uh, around the IDEA Act, right? Um, the standards, you know, they were pretty clear in the IDEA Act and certainly for accessibility for the agencies was front and center for all the websites and public facing services and agencies did a lot of work around there. And I think the memo just really reinforced and added a lot of detail around governance, content, and and some of it's common sense, but it really gives the web content owners, you know, the CIO, the web administrators, the designers, um, uh, something to fall back on, you know, when somebody says, well, why do we have to do that, right? It's not just the IDEA Act, but it puts the meat around um, the standards for the entire federal government, adding, you know, making sure things are searchable and secure by design, mobile uh, first, that digital end-to-end to to include e-signatures. And I think that digital end-to-end will also help shore up and support the CX that we were just talking about um, a minute ago. And I think, Dave, um, this is an opportunity, a shout out to the Section 508 community. Um, Often they're overlooked. And there's a big piece in that memorandum about Section 508, and it really drives they really work to drive accessibility across the board, right? All those public facing services. And I think the CX improved customer experience coupled with this memorandum that really details what was set forth in the IDEA Act and, and really help agencies um, and give them, you know, oh, the policies when they need it to say we have to remove outdated duplicative content. And this is not easy, you know, having had to rebuild um websites, public facing websites and consolidate and having an agency work together. This is really hard. And having that detail within that memorandum, I think really helps on the customer experience and that digital experience as well. Your former colleague at OMB, Claire Martorano, was one of the first speakers at the CX Summit. And um, and she mentioned about how, you know, the digital experience work can be so helpful to improve the customer experience as long as we keep customer experience top of mind. So Robert, how about you? Let's uh, let's let you weigh in on the 21st Century Idea Act and the I'll say the movement from paper-based processes to a more electronic experience. Yeah, um I want to reinforce everything Maria said, but add, you know, those of us who've been assessing and trying to improve program performance 
saw a real opportunity to expand the impact programs are having on citizens. One of the things evaluators will often ask is, is our program uh, purpose clear and is it well designed to achieve its objectives? And those objectives, of course, have has to be uh, reaching intended beneficiaries. And uh, improving the digital experience is a clear way to make it easier for a broader set of constituents to access the benefits that have been authorized and appropriated for them, making sure that the digital front door is easily accessible and that one's identity can be um, quickly verified so that you can move on to gaining the benefits and services that that the, these programs are offering. The customer experience mandate is just so important. I, I, you know, I've often said it's one of the top reasons why large IT system implementations aren't very successful when we don't have the customer involved. And so it's just so helpful in so many important friends. Robert, I know that evidence-based policy has been, I'll say, a longtime passion of yours. And uh, and given that digital advances will hopefully accelerate the availability of data and speed decision-making, talk a little bit about that priority about evidence-based in this context about CX and DX work. Well, you know, I, I think uh, improving access to services through uh, improving the digital experience, improving the overall citizen experience is going to make programs more effective. Um, but the availability of data is accelerating so rapidly that we're going to get better insights into what's working and what's not. You know, the evidence-based policy, the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act set a new governance over evidence-based policymaking, one element of which was evaluation um, planning. So we should see more and more evaluations having been conducted as a result of that new law come out over the next months and years. That's going to build a body of evidence that we've never had before. But I also see a lot more agencies linking data sets that heretofore were unknown to one another. There are a lot of barriers to integrating data across the government. Uh, we're seeing more and more of these data linkages that I think will likewise unlock insights to help us improve programs in any manner of ways, not least of which is improving the customer experience. We're going to take a short break now, and when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Maria Rote, owner of MA Road Consulting, and Robert Shea, CEO of Gov Navigators. I'm Dave Wendergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACTIAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACTIAC. I'm Dave Wendergren, and today we're reflecting back on 2023 and looking forward to the year ahead. Our commentator prognosticators are both longtime leaders in the federal market. Maria Rode is the owner of MA Rode Consulting and former federal deputy CIO. Robert Shea is the CEO of Gov Navigators and former associate director at OMB. No year in review would be complete this year without a discussion of artificial intelligence. Maria, we seem to be moving so fast and have leaped from the early days of robotic process automation into Gen AI. Talk a little bit about the AI explosion and where you're seeing uptakes in the use of AI in government. Yeah, thanks, Dave. The 
You know, AI, there's a, just when the CIO council, when you go back a few years, started collecting the use cases, right? The use cases were coming in from the federal agencies and you saw, you know, how AI could speed up everything from NASA, right? Inspecting a glove and using cloud-based services and AI to, to take all that data and very quickly um, do the work that would take, you know, hours and hours and hours to inspect an astronaut's glove. And, and around cybersecurity, right? So AI was being used around cybersecurity to, to pull in events and understand what's going on in your network and your infrastructure and an alert on, on cybersecurity and help agencies move from just reactive to proactive. Now, so there's a lot of use cases across the federal government and research and medicine, you know, whether it's NIH or the VA. But as you fast forward, you know, look at the AI executive order that recently came out covering privacy, security, data, you know, looking at, and it's not just for the federal government, it's for the country starting to set some of those standards and where where the U.S. is around artificial intelligence and the posture that it's going to take. And then following on with OMB and the work in OSTP, around, you know, reporting and more detail around that privacy, security, data, the use, appointing, you know, AI officers, you know, chief AI officers or responsible officials across the board. And then, um, and if I might mention, Dave, GAO just released their report on AI with, with an entire series of recommendations that they had. They looked at the 1,200 use cases that the agencies uh, reported on, and they did a lot of analysis around that. And they really showed the inconsistencies across the federal government on the use of AI, on all of the factors or many of the factors that were in the AI executive order um, and how agencies were reporting on the data, how they're using the data. The executive order was, was a start. And yet OMB, OPM, OSTP, to begin with, not just the agencies, they really need to be clear in their guidance um, on policy implementation, uh, privacy, and, and certainly the workforce as well. So I think each of these is building on the next to really, really take AI across the federal government and the use of it to start getting some consistencies on reporting and the data usage and um, you know, what data are you using? How are you using that data? Um, and, it, and it just really highlighted how much work remains just across the agencies around the identification, the development, implementation, and just general oversight of AI, who's using it, how they're using it. And to Robert's point, you know, with data being shared across agencies for mission need, are they the right data sets that are feeding into the AI models and understanding those models and the data quality that's going into building out those models and how that's being iterated? So just a ton going on in that space from, you know, what agencies have been doing over the last few years to the executive order. And now GIO landed today with their analysis on, on the use cases and what's going on in the federal government. So just a lot of moving parts. Breaking news. I love it. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, so and, and we'll talk a little bit more about the implementation of it in a minute. But before we do that, Robert, I also wanted to give you a chance to weigh in about like the excitement around it and the opportunities around AI. And so maybe say a few words about the opportunities you're seeing and, and the sort of the imperative to accelerate AI. And then we'll talk a little bit more about the implementation of it. 
Yeah, you know, I was fumbling around for a podcast to listen to and stumbled upon a New York Times tech writer's prognostication in early 2023. So what they were predicting was going to happen in technology generally. One of the things they said is that TikTok would be banned in the United States. So I sort of chuckled at that. Um, <laughs> uh, but they said that AI would be uh, regulated, that regulations governing AI would have been instituted by now. And one of the podcasters chuckled at that and said, predicting the government would do something is is not a safe prediction. And they were right. We haven't regulated here. But the EO, the draft memo that OMB issued, both are significant steps to get our arms around this because this has blown up and is going to occupy the tech community's attention for the foreseeable future. I mean, I feel kind of old having seen the dawn of the Internet uh, in, in government where we were resistant to the adoption of that, the cell phone, the iPhone. Um, you, you see these waves come come along and government's resistance. I think there, there seems to be an understanding that there's an opportunity here that we've got to take advantage of. And the sooner we get our heads wrapped around the ethical uh, security implications of these tools, the faster we'll be able to leverage them. I love that Maria pointed out this report that GAO the gift they gave us at the end of, of 2023, <laughs> analyzing these use cases, an incredibly rich source of what government intends to do with this. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit, a lot of easy stuff that AI can assist with that's going to free up loads of effort. These more programmatic areas, GAO lists, you know, analyzing data from cameras and radar to, uh, to check the border, analyzing photographs from drones to look at the environment, targeting specific scientific specimens um, that planetary rovers should focus on. Those are things that I wouldn't have imagined a year ago. And I think if we have this conversation next year, we're going to be surprised at what we'll be able to talk about in this realm at that time. It's that it, you make a great analogy around, you know, the the new idea comes, there's reticence about implementing it. And so this is another area where we have to be really careful because on the one hand, we certainly don't want to get behind on something as crucial as AI will be, but the whole issues around ethical implementation are something we have to focus on. Marie, I want to give you a chance to jump in. Yeah, you know, and I think, uh, Robert, you gave some really great examples, you know, around the environment and things like that. And there's so many advances in medicine, but I want to talk a little more tactically if I could, because... You guys know as well, though, I think about it, I think in terms of opportunities and I go, oh, hey, cool. And I've always been very um, forward leaning, right? Early adopter on many things. And I think that some of the work around AI and its ability to crawl code in minutes or seconds and look at what's been running on the mainframe, what the processes are, laying that out. I know this is in its initial work. Um, but I look at that as like a huge opportunity where we still have legacy um, code bases, legacy infrastructure and systems that where we were previously looking at, how do I pick this apart and build out microservices where something can crawl through my code and say, well, this is what the code says you do and lays out the processes without that manual work. I think about that in, in terms of just a huge opportunity. And I go, Oh, cool. Something can be done in five minutes that would have taken me months to do. So so leaning in on things like this from a very tactical perspective, boy, I see the opportunities here to really advance. 
There are some wonderful opportunities. And we got about a minute left, Robert. I want to give you like a last shot on, on this topic. You know, you got to get it right. And so um, so any other thoughts about, you know, how to how to make sure that, that, that we are advancing the cause while doing it in an ethical and equitable yeah, way? Yeah, I'm almost at a loss for words. My head is spinning uh, hearing Maria talk about the implications of this in accelerating modernization. We are in so many respects in the ditch. We remain in the ditch. And you wonder whether a government with that's so backwards in many technological areas can uh, take advantage of this technology. She has pinpointed how we might do that. We can leapfrog by leveraging this technology to get out of the ditch where we've been stuck for so many years. I think that's an excellent place to leave it for the moment. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Maria Rote, owner of MA Rote Consulting, and Robert Shea, CEO of GovNavigators. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. I'm Dave Wintergren, and this is our Reflecting Back and Looking Forward episode, where we're highlighting the issues and implications coming out of 2023 and also looking at what's ahead for us in 2024. We're delighted to be joined by Maria Rote, owner of M.A. Rote Consulting, former federal deputy CIO and past president of the American Council for Technology, and also Robert Shea, CEO of GovNavigators, former associate director for the Office of Management and Budget, and former chair of the board for the National Academy of Public Administration. When we went to our last break, we were talking about AI implementation and how AI might be a stimulus for tech modernization work. And uh, so, Maria... You know, tech modernization, you know, I've been talking about it for years. Is it still a priority for government? And if so, what aspects of tech modernization should be top of mind for federal agencies in the year ahead? Uh, thanks, Dave. You know, technology modernization is not a one and done. It's it's sustained, continuous modernization over time and not just a one and, and done. And I think it, sometimes people think, oh, we're going to modernize a thing and then we're done. I, I know it's hard to do. But that that sustained continuous modernization is not going away. And that's the approach that that needs to be adopted. Right. If you go back 18 months ago, two years ago, we weren't talking as much about AI. But here we are fast forward and modernizing our systems. All of that is still relevant and agencies across the federal government, even as as we talked about the CX, right, customer experience, that requires continuous sustained modernization. And the cybersecurity work that's underway around zero trust strategies, as agencies continue the implementation, continuous improvement, zero trust is not a one and done. It is not, I'm going to do a five-year plan, then I'm done. It's continually building and maturing on cybersecurity capabilities. That's the same thing with technology um, modernization. All of this goes hand in hand. And if I'm going to add on to that, you take the need around technology modernization to support newer encryption standards, even as we're looking at a horizon some years out around Uh, quantum computing, right? You can't take your eye off that ball. The technology modernization has to continue. You have to continue to update your standards around encryption, cybersecurity, 
login, identity, authentication, all of that, because there are so many threats. And if you can't keep up with that technology and keep it front and center, well, then you're going to get behind and then you're going to be vulnerable. And then there's going to be cybersecurity attacks and on and on and on. So so you can't stop. You have to stay on top of it. And being in the CRs um, and the continuous one-year funding cycles and things like that makes it really hard but you have to figure out a way through it so that that you can continue with that modernization. Robert, give you a chance to weigh in on tech modernization and maybe also some thoughts on, you know, the technology modernization fund, which has been in place for a few years and, and both tech modernization is a priority for government agencies, but also the the future for things like the TMF. Yeah. I fear I'm dating myself, but if you look back on the Quicksilver initiatives that we launched at the beginning of the Bush administration and compared where those initiatives are today, uh, where we hoped they would have been, um, I think you'd be disappointed. So there is incredible room for improvement across the board. There may be surges in modernization, but sometimes these efforts stall. And to Maria's point, we're not one and done. This has to be a sustained an area in which we have sustained attention and leadership focus. As to the technology modernization fund, you know, you can take the boy out of OMB, but you can't take the budget out of the boy. You celebrate the novel budgeting device that is the technology modernization fund. We were able to secure billions that might not otherwise have been appropriated for some modernization efforts and that we should celebrate. But more importantly, this discipline about getting a return on an investment in modernization should also be sustained. Folks need to understand that we're not making these investments so that agencies' lives can be better. These are, uh, you know, to what we talked about at the top of the hour, these are to serve citizens better. And we need to see a return either in monetary terms or in performance from the investments we make in these projects. Maria, you were closely involved in TMF work too. Before we move on to our next topic to reflect on, any like parting thoughts you'd like to offer about the TMF? Yeah, you know, on the TMF, it gives the federal government the opportunity to really look uh, enterprise-wide. So if the board takes a view, you know, an agency comes in for some modernization funds, the board should be looking at, okay, what else does this project touch? Does it involve another agency? or another two agencies. Um, Department of Labor, a couple of years ago, is a prime example on some of their work where they where they took on, they were the leader, but they worked with the State Department. They worked with USDA and they worked with USCIS. They pulled together four separate agencies to work on a project that they requested funding for. And you have to continue with that, that holistic look because what they did was they improved the digital service experience, they improved customer experience, and they took uh, more than a 30-day turnaround um, for some visa applications and took that down to a day. It was all digital. I mean, within less than a day, they took that entire process. And I think the TMF has this unique ability and view to fund those type of programs where it's not just I'm going to modernize, I'm going to do technology modernization on one little thing and I need some funds, but to step back and understand how that intersects with other agencies and what dependencies or upstream or downstream 
and where that could drive modernization, not just at that one agency, but fan out to others where there's intersections. I think it's just a huge opportunity for the board to look at those kind of things. November saw the issuance of the Better Contracting Initiative. Um, I was delighted to see ActiX work on the periodic table of acquisition innovation actually called out in that in that federal guidance. But for the purposes of today's conversation, though, I, I want to first focus on the idea that the plan is designed to save billions of dollars annually, like a $10 billion hit out there. And so, Maria, I, will government, what will government need to do to achieve that level of savings through the initiatives that the, that this new guidance envisions? Yeah, you know, I while I was at OMB, I did a lot of work with with GSA, and I'll use their IT vendor management office as an example, right? Looking at at this is just a very simple example of licensing across the entire federal government for software and different packages, right? Because vendors market to each agency, component bureau, and they've got different pricing across the board. It's it's really hard to do and. But getting that consistent pricing across the board also requires looking at the agencies and how they're using the licenses, because sometimes it's not, it's one size does not fit all. So while you're trying to save money on efficiencies around licensing, a one size doesn't fit all. And how do you get to that 80% agreement across the entire federal government on this is what a software license package should look like? And then then there's options to address the other 20% or 10%, whatever that number is. This is not easy. Um, You know, firsthand experience working with the vendor management office and and working with the vendors and the negotiations that have to go into that. It's important work, but it's not easy and and it's hard. And again, like the IT software licenses, and even, you know, cloud spend and how much agencies are spending on cloud, how much they're they're just across the board. And I think also training acquisition um, staff across the federal government so there's more consistency in purchases and that, that they just don't always go out and buy something that they step back and think, oh, well, let me see if GSA has standard pricing that I should be leveraging one of their central contracts on this rather than going off and negotiating. So that not only saves time on the licensing or whatever is being purchased, but also the the people resources, right? The hourly spend that people, you know, building their own contracts and things like that. So there's, there's a huge opportunity out here. And I, under this, you can't eat the whole elephant all at once. You got to take some bites out of it. I think the Ven- IT vendor management office was one of those initial bites um, and they were making just some incremental success um, with the CIO council, working with the procurement council and others to really get to those savings for the federal government. I mean, billions and billions of dollars on the line. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Maria Rode, owner of Emmy Rode Consulting, and Robert Shea, CEO of GovNavigators. I'm Dave Wenergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ActIAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wenergren, and today we're reflecting back on 2023 and looking forward to the year ahead. Our commentator prognosticators are both longtime leaders in the federal tech market, 
Maria Rode is the owner of Emmy Rode Consulting and former federal deputy CIO. Robert Shea is the CEO of Gov Navigators and former associate director at OMB. As we went to break, we were talking about the Better Contracting Initiative, Robert, and Maria was talking about like the, the bar that's being set about saving billions of dollars. But, but you know, in my mind, better contracting initiatives need to do more than just save money. They need to help drive better outcomes, that deliver more effective solutions. And, you know, and so you've spent time both in government and leading big companies and, you know, what are some things that are on your holiday wish list that you'd like to see in terms of implementing best practices for improving government contracting? Yeah, sorry, Dave. I'm I'm pulling the uh, elephant meat out of my teeth. Um, <laughs> the uh, you know, as I look at the Better Contracting Initiative, and you've been around as long as we have. No offense. You sometimes have to interpret how old things are dressed up again, and. I think a lot of these initiatives in in the Better Contract Initiative are good ones. You know, like like with category management, you want to use the data you've got to ascertain whether you're getting as good a deal for the American people as you can. You want to look at areas where you are making duplicate investments in the same thing. And we should continue to pursue that low-hanging fruit. Um, But I also think it's important to remind ourselves we – ought to have an objective to diversify the federal government's supplier base. It's a good time to remind people that those who do work for the federal government are obligated to offer it its lowest available price. Um, And, you know, squeezing that supplier base too much makes it a less attractive customer and thereby reducing the number of people who want to do business with the government. So we ought to make sure that we are, bringing a balanced approach to this. One thing I'll say is the procurement process remains too burdensome and time-consuming. It takes much too long to um, buy stuff, for federal agencies to buy stuff, and that's added cost um, that eats into the price that's charged to the government and that, um, um, that contractors have to eat themselves in terms of profit. So, it, it, again, makes it a less attractive place to do business, something we ought to work on as well. There are so many uh, great things going on in the world. And and to your point, we need contracting practices that encourage the innovation that we see going on in the commercial world and bring it into government and not make that harder by how restrictive we are about past performance or about encouraging innovation or valuing alternative proposals and all those kinds of things that we've championed before. Robert, I'm going to stick with you and say, you know, Given your leadership experience at OMB in the private sector and and, in a few minutes for you too, Maria, let's talk a little about the continuing uncertainty that government faces. You know, Robert, start with the pain and challenges associated with potential government shutdowns, the lack of full year appropriations, operating under continuing resolutions. You know, what's going on and what should we expect and what's some advice on surviving these times of financial uncertainty? Well, let's just say how nice it was to spend the holidays without the fear of a shutdown because there are so many Christmases that I spent on the telephone or waiting for the shoe to drop um, uh, for a a continuing resolution or an appropriations bill to get signed. But we are, you know, looking down the barrel of a double barrel actually with a, a, a late January, early February two two deadlines for, um, the current continuing resolutions. So there's a real concern that with such a slim 
Republican majority in the House that will actually be able to get appropriations through. Because as we saw, the House was having a hard time getting the Republican version of those appropriations bills enacted, much less a Senate House negotiated version. So I I see a real fear that that, that we may experience a shutdown. I hope not, and hopefully reason prevails. Um, nonetheless, uh, agencies got to get better and better at managing under um, this uncertainty. The uh, so so late in the year, coming to terms in what their budgets will be. So the financial managers, the budgeteers, are going to be relied on more and more to get folks um, through Mm -hmm. these times. Maria, what's been your experience with these situations and what's some advice you'd like to offer our government and industry colleagues about dealing with this uncertainty? You know what? We've been through this. uh, How many, how many years has it been now? Uh, CR after CR. And we're a couple of decades in, I think. (laughs) Um, Almost all of them. Yep. Almost all of them. And it's just, it's, it's hard, not just, you know, the, the uncertainty, like Robert was talking about it, it's, it's very hard because as you're, you know, uh, in a leadership role at an agency, oh, well, guess what? We're going to run out of money at this point. So we've got to start ramping up. And then you've got phone calls. Other work gets set aside while you're planning for shutdown. Um, it, you know, getting your folks who's going to have to work, right? Your cybersecurity folks and others, making sure that you know, every agency pretty much now has a playbook on all the steps and the checklists because a CR is going to happen every year. It's, it's really a given anymore. And if something's a given, you're going to have a checklist. So you're not surprised, you know, all the things you need to do, post more banners on your websites, all of that, all of that takes time and work. And then you do all this planning and then you get right to the edge and then maybe something passes, you know, uh, through and then a budget gets passed and then the CR is extended or what, you know, whatever happens after that. Okay, great. We're not going to shut down. Oh, but in six weeks, we're going to go through the whole drill again. And it is very hard because it, it, it puts a lot of uncertainty, not just on the workforce and leadership, but also on the American public. Are they going to get the services that they need? Will there be delays in any benefits that they're getting? Um, also, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, do do our adversaries, uh, hackers out there think, oh, the government's shut down, so they're vulnerable, right? Well, no, because there's still people working. It's just there's so much uncertainty um, with it. On And then on the other hand, you know, every agency's got a playbook. Okay, we're going to another CR. Check, 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 check. Here's all the things we have to do. Here's all the things we need to put in place. So it's it's very difficult and it's very hard. And, and it makes planning, and it, this isn't just the federal government, it's every contractor and everybody who's who works for the federal government, and it trickles down into the states as well. So it has this, this, this incredible downstream impact across the U.S. and the economy, if you will, because it, what's going to happen with the services? We don't know. Um, just so much, so many unknowns, Dave, and 
you can probably go for an hour on just <laughs> on just yeah. this topic. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing up the sort of the insidiousness of CRs because that's that's not a victory. That just has its own set of problems in itself. And then what's completely unfair with only a couple of minutes left in the segment, I'm just going to say, if that wasn't enough uncertainty, Happy New Year! It's 2024, and it's a presidential election year. Robert, inevitable changes take place regardless of who wins the election. People will be rotating out of senior jobs. It's a time of transition for government. What are your thoughts on the election year ahead? What do government employees need to be prepared for? And what should government executives be doing in leading their agencies through the election year? Yeah, well, there are a lot of new governance policies in place over presidential transitions. This won't be like other presidential elections. The One of the major party candidates is uh, under multiple indictments and looks to be the likely nominee. So how that plays out will be something to watch. Uh, nonetheless, we've got to continue rational transition planning. Woe be the outgoing administration that doesn't take the potential for presidential transition seriously. So agencies and executives will be called to contribute to presidential transition. I will say that one of the planks in the Republican platform seems to be a renewal of efforts to institute Schedule F, which, as you know, would convert a whole swath of senior executives in federal agencies to employment at will. And um, I think that would be a real blow to a professional civil service that we need to look out for and protect against any way we can. Yes, it's going to be challenging times ahead. And we will witness it here together and we will get a chance to opine about it, hopefully not too painfully, a year from now as we go through as we go through another year in review with each of you. Maria Rote is the owner of MA Rote Consulting and Robert Shea is the CEO of GovNavigators. Both are absolutely exceptional leaders that I'm just delighted to know and call friends. And they're both champions for good government. Thank you both for joining us today and for all that you do for the federal government and all that you do for the nation. Keep it up. We'll look forward to seeing how those prognostications come true in the year ahead. And uh, I'll just say, as we close out, there are so many ways to kick off the new year with ACT-IAC. On Wednesday, January 31st in Reston, Virginia, ACT-IAC is hosting an acquisition forum on making AI work for us with a look at Gen AI and other emerging technologies and how to ensure our acquisition approaches make effective use of these new technologies. We'll then follow up that forum with the 2024 Digital Transformation Summit in Reston, Virginia on Thursday, February 22nd. If you'd like to register for these events or learn more about ACT-IAC, check out the Federal News Network website or go to our website, www.actiac.org. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you've been listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.